Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and a new book by Angela Saini has been receiving glowing reviews and generating a lot of interesting discussion. The book is entitled Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story. This episode of the podcast explores some of the themes and issues outlined in that book. We'll hear from Angela Saini herself. Angela is a trained engineer turned science journalist and we'll also hear from some of the people I met at the International Conference on Women in Physics, including someone who in her own words is the only female physicist in Zimbabwe. And you'll get some practical tips on how to deal with your own unconscious bias. Now barely a day goes by at the moment without somebody recommending Angela Saini's book to me with some people even telling me that it's changing the way they look at the world. And when I caught up with Angela, I began by asking her what had motivated her to write it. Well, really, it's just it was just an attempt to know myself better. <laughs> so there's a lot of research that's published um, and that makes it into the press, talking about how different men and women are. Um, you know, this idea that women can't read maps and women are no good at parking and men are no good um, at expressing themselves or they're not emotional enough. And um, it doesn't, it didn't really chime with my experience of real life because to me, everyone seems different. You know, there are men who fit that stereotype. There are women who fit the stereotypes, but there are also plenty of people who don't. So I just wanted to know the facts. What does science actually say about sex difference and what is... Uh, the account that it gives of men and women. Um, and what I found fascinating wasn't so much a science. The science itself is actually quite early um, and it can't tell us a huge deal, particularly neuroscience, for instance. We have a very rudimentary understanding of the brain. Um, and even on behaviour, we're still only just starting to get to grips with the fact that we as humans are all uh, very re variable as individuals, but what I found really fascinating was the fact was the, the kind of story behind the science. So, what were the motivations of these scientists who were saying these things? Uh, what were their agendas? What was the narrative that they were trying to paint? And also, how were the public reacting to their research, um, taking hold of it, and using that to either augment or challenge their own stereotypes? I'm looking at uh, the whole sweep of science really from the mid-19th century. So what did male Victorian scientists tell us about women all the way up to what are people saying now? What are scientists saying today about the differences between men and women? In the 19th century, there were a lot of male biologists, not all of them, but many of them, who... Um, really believed that women were intellectually inferior. And they include Charles Darwin. Um, he believed that women were kind of less evolved, that we, were we, were, we still had to catch up to men in the evolutionary stakes, that men were the kind of more impressive version of uh, the human species. But also others, for example, Walter Heap, the reproductive biologist, he was, you know, the country's leading expert on reproductive biology, but he wrote an entire book um, around the time that women were fighting for the vote, so early 20th century, arguing that women uh, were wasting their reproductive energies by, by arguing and campaigning for the vote, that they should stay at home and take care of their husbands and, their, and raise their children. And what are we seeing today? Is it a similar story? It's changed, but it, what was surprising to me was that some of that same strand of thinking is still there. So while it may not be as clearly sexist as uh, Darwin and Heap were, um, there's certainly this, um, 
this kind of underlying idea behind a lot of research that there is an essential difference between men and women and that it implies that women are designed to be nurturers and homemakers whereas men are somehow designed to be out there building things you know doing thinking jobs mathematics DIY that kind of thing so that it's not it's not in a huge leap from what the Victorians were saying but but I guess uh, scientists are more careful and subtle about what they say now. But so you're saying that there's a difference between what the actual science says. You go back to the papers, you go back to the research, and the science says something, but then they're sort of translating it through their own frame uh, to say something else. Yeah, I mean, the science is actually quite thin on all of this. Uh, Darwin, for instance, all he really had to go on were his own kind of very personal observations of the world around him. Um, and really that was a kind of thin slice of middle class or upper middle class Victorian society. So not hugely objective at all. Um, and today, some people still do the same, that they don't have a huge amount of data, even in neuroscience. So we imagine that with modern brain scanning technologies, we have very, very sophisticated pictures of the brain. Yes, they are more sophisticated than they used to be, but they're not sophisticated enough to give us a huge amount of information about what we're actually thinking or how the brain actually works. They're, they're still very fuzzy compared to the complexity of uh, the brain as an organ. Um, and in that space between the little data that we have and the huge kind of degree of uh, gender stereotypes that we have out in society and that kind of gap, there's a lot of hypothesis and speculation. And that's really the dangerous area. That's where um, the controversy lies. When you've been looking at it, can you see that coming from the scientists? Is it coming from... The, the people like you and me who are talking about the science or always it, 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 a mixture of both it's it's everywhere really so even the scientists themselves sometimes spec you know go maybe a little bit too far in their speculation and there's one brain scientist i interviewed um for the book who uh, who admitted to me himself that he used to describe male female brains as being sexually dimorphic that is taking different forms and he doesn't do that anymore because he felt like he was overstepping the mark in saying that and actually the research doesn't back that up um but also you know journalists when they write this up universities when they write their press releases the public when they read these things um we all add our own layer of meaning if you like to what to what we're reading based on our own personal um, stereotypes and prejudices. So, for example, um, a big uh, and quite an important brain study was published in 2014 looking at white matter differences in the brain. And it suggested that w men and women have different um, kind of patterns and uh, connections between various parts of their brain. And many people read that as as implying that women are better at multitasking, when in fact the research said nothing of the kind. It wasn't able to even say that. And whether a stereotype is a positive one or a negative one, unless that stereotype is true, it's still a damaging stereotype. It damages somebody. Um, so, you know, I, I still get people who say to me, well, women are better at this, so isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a good thing that they're better? And I would say, how do you know that they're better? Um, yeah. We still don't have that data. And where we do have data about psychological differences between men and women, the differences appear to be very, very small, you know, fractions of a standard deviation, even if they do exist. So the 
thing is, I, I think we need to challenge stereotypes, whether they are positive or negative, and really question them, um, because very often they don't have a biological basis. Is there anything in the science that you can see is is making a clear definition between men and women? Well, yeah, of course, there are differences. There are some physical differences between men and women. Um, the obvious physical ones that we all know, like upper body strength and height, um, we can't deny that. Although, again, like I said, these things sit on an average. So there will be many women who are stronger than than some men, and there will be many women who are taller than some men, um, which is a strong argument for saying that we shouldn't um, discriminate based on sex alone, given that this spectrum exists. But even on psychological... Um, when it comes to psychological differences... Uh, it's it's more of a grey area, partly because everyone is so different. You know, the differences within the sexes are far greater than the differences between the sexes, and that really muddles the results. It means that different studies get often get very different results, um, and also diff uh, studies get different results over time, um, which just goes to show how social and cultural factors also impact biology directly. Um, yeah, and I was prepared for that. I was prepared for the possibility that there might be things that didn't sit happily with my kind of feminist view of the world. And there were, there are some things. For example, there's some studies that suggest quite strongly that um, young girls um, from the age of two prefer to play with dolls, again, just on average, and boys prefer to play with trucks, again, on average, and that there is possibly a biological basis to this, although that isn't set in stone yet the work still needs to be done the book is called how science got women wrong and the new research that's rewriting tell me about the new research well i think for me it's the most exciting part of the story um if you think about all the mistakes that have been done not just in the past but also now um of course people aren't taking taking this lying down people are challenging these ideas and especially as women have entered the sciences in much greater numbers since the 60s and 70s and 80s they in particular and particularly i should say women who identify as feminists um have challenged these ideas and tried to replicate previous experiments they've tried to um, look more broadly at some of the science, and they have done truly incredible work, um, broader, more universal work, really thoughtful stuff that um, really paints a very different picture uh, of women um, from the one that Darwin had. So, for example, um, there's a great researcher who I had the huge privilege of spending some time with, Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy, um, who is now an emeritus professor living in California, in Sacramento. And she's written a number of books um, on motherhood, on female behaviour, on sexual behaviour uh, since the 80s. Um, and she's pretty well known in the US, but I really do think she should be a household name everywhere because her ideas have really challenged these long-standing sexist stereotypes in science and tried to rewrite that story. And the work she's done is so incredible. It's truly groundbreaking. And in fact, some other women I've interviewed, other women evolutionary biologists I've interviewed, have said that her work has moved them to tears because it's just so incredible. It's so clever and well thought out. Um, so I recommend her. And one another hope I have for Inferior is that people read the book, learn about the work of these incredible female scientists, and then also look up their work and start reading their books too.
More from Angela later in the podcast when she'll describe some of the things that we can do differently as scientists, journalists and people. Many of the themes raised in Inferior were being discussed at the recent International Conference on Women in Physics, which took place in Birmingham. So I went along with Physics World's Features Editor, Sarah Tesh, to meet some of the delegates. Dr Jess Wade is a physicist who reviewed the book for Physics World. Sarah Tesh spoke to Jess at the conference. Hi, my name is Jess and I'm a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Physics and Centre for Plastic Electronics at Imperial College London. And alongside that, I do an awful lot of stuff to empower and encourage girls and young women into physics and to stay in physics. I am a massive enthusiast for this book. It's absolutely engaging and encouraging and empowering. And it's called Inferior, How Science Has Got Women Wrong. It's by Angela Saini, who is an engineer, an engineer from Oxford, who went into science journalism and broadcasting and writing. She writes for The Guardian. And it started off as her being asked by The Guardian to write a book or write an article, a kind of piece about the menopause. And she thought, oh, all women are always asked to write about the menopause. But increasingly through researching it, because she's an incredibly thorough and diligent researcher, she discovers that no one really knows about the menopause. No one really knows about the science and the mechanisms of why it happens to women, older women, older humans other animals no one really understands it and that's basically because science for so long has been such a male dominated field male do- males men researchers don't really want to get in on that kind of minefield and so they have these really strong opinions like oh oh old women get infertile because they're ugly and men don't want to be with old women so that's why it happens and that's the science behind it when actually there's so much more in kind of that richness of understanding in just you know women outlive men in loads of different cultures and loads of different societies and it's understanding that the genetics the biology behind it just hasn't happened because it hasn't been actually properly investigated and then she goes on this journey through kind of neuroscience through life sciences through all of these studies that we've become so familiar with about brain size about hobbies and interests about things that babies are into and whether it's a boy or a girl baby and all of these stereotypes that we've got and and, you know stereotypes develop for a reason and all of these reasons are based on these studies and Angela Saini goes around to all of these different audiences all of these different people doing the research and really tries to understand why they've done it what the data actually meant without them imposing their own stereotype upon it and their own kind of implicit bias So when you conduct a science study, when you design the experiment, you're designing the experiment based on your own biases. And if you're conducting a science study into something as sensitive as gender, all of your biases about gender and sexism and, you know, we've had a huge amount of discussion at this conference that it's much more broad than just gender, right? It's intersectionality, it's whether it's your race, it's your disability, it's your sexuality, it's your religion. And you're imposing all of that onto whatever experiment you're designing, the method that you use, the techniques that you do. And she is so careful in the way that she researches it, completely neutral throughout the book. She goes around talking to people who I would be horrified at talking to. I would be shouting them, I'd be pulling their hair out, and she just remains completely calm and just asks them straight up, ask their researchers, ask their postdocs, ask the people on these papers that get huge numbers of citations what the actual experiment meant, what they did, what the results meant, and really tries to understand it. So I really like it from that perspective, that it's, it's not going in. You know, it's not going in saying, women are so hard done by 
like they're so brilliant and just getting angry it's going in and saying I really want to understand this and I'm going to understand it by actually looking at the data rather than looking at your assumptions and also often it's not the case that the researcher was this horrible rogue person who wanted to kill, get out and ruin the reputation of women it's that the tiny little piece that was picked up by the press team not the press team like physics world who are obviously brilliant and amazing people <laughs> but the, the press release that comes out sometimes that's the, the real killer right the 100 word summary may yeah. have some statement about women that's just you know that's going to sell the paper there was a, an article the other day in the Sunday Times about women and, men, women and men's brain size they've done a big MRI study they say men's brains are bigger and therefore they're more intelligent and you don't know until you go to the actual paper about what the stats said behind that and you know how often they found that men were more intelligent how often they found that women had this smaller amount of whatever coloured matter it is and I think that's the real brilliance of this book that you understand pick them behind the press release there's yeah. an awful lot of published data that we can't get access to or even if you can get access and it's open editing and open source or whatever I can't interpret it so as a physicist I find it very hard to read neuroscience papers fascinating stuff but difficult to research so I think that's a really really great part of the book too and also like the increase in the past 20 years of fMRI and functional magnetic resonance imaging has just allowed people to do these studies endlessly. So I was, I was talking to my mum, who's a psychiatrist, about it, and any department that wants to publish in this kind of thing just gets an MRI scanner, right? So you have these huge psychology departments with MRI scanners because you can do this kind of really trendy imaging and just publish because anything you publish on gender just gets cited, it gets comments. The, the news articles that come out about this kind of stuff, you look at the comments under Underneath them, on on the Times, on the Guardian, on these websites that you think are, you know, intelligent people reading them, and you're like, how can you write this? How can you begin to do it? So I guess it. I loved the book, right? I loved it because of the science. I loved it because of how engaging and thorough a researcher Angela Saini is, but also because it just made me completely rethink the way that I do things and the way that I I think about bias and the way that I think about science experiments and review things and edit things and think about ethics and I, I genuinely cannot recommend a book enough I mean as you can tell I endlessly tweet about it I've, I've personally bought them to give away to awesome members of this audience at the International Conference for Women in Physics I had to get a special delivery to my dorm room here I, I think it's incredible and I think if more people read this then we'd rethink the way that we do science experiments and rethink our stupid biases that we all have yeah Wow. <laughs> and I didn't require one question. No, <laughs> I think you answered everything as well that I was going to ask. So, okay, let's go for, if, if you had to pick one, one thing in the book. That I love the most? Yes. Okay, so one thing that I find absolutely fascinating is she's looking at different generations, how different generations have looked at gender studies, right? Yeah. And in every single generation, whether it's going back and it's looking at Darwin, and Darwin was this massive sexist who, while brilliant in loads of different areas, don't get me wrong, he was absolutely determined to say women are less intelligent and he really really strongly believed that and there were women then at that time who were really countering it and really saying standing up and saying this isn't right now we're more familiar with that we have these women who will take on men and they'll stand up and stand up for what they believe and you have that amazing case of the lady who worked for uber and really really called out their sexism and now uber is a massive conflict zone right and i think you what's uplifting about the book is throughout history despite all these horrible claims being made about women you have these trailblazers who are out there to make it right so I loved that but my favorite story was about um, promiscuous bluebirds so I don't know if you've had a chance to read the book yet if you haven't then <laughs> I have a bone to pick with you but um, it's about um, how 
biology and life sciences researchers looking at animals have historically said that women are, or female animals, we can say female animals, I don't like the word female most of the time, but female animals are, are not very promiscuous, they're really chaste, they like to go home to their husband, they're very loyal. And you have these cases with bluebirds where girl bluebirds will fly really long distances to get away from their partner to just have loads of affairs and loads of like casual sex. And they're just going around like flapping about having this great time. And, and people have known this for ages that they go on these kind of sex adventures, right? That sounds really racy. Hello, physics world. <laughs> Hi, my mum, who I'll inevitably get to listen to this. But these birds are going out and doing this. And, and men researchers who've looked at this say, oh, yeah, they're going off and they're being raped. They go into these different colonies and they get raped. And the women have been saying for ages, no, they're just much more racy than we think they are. And that kind of narrative, going and finding that out, I would never have heard that, right? It's very unlikely to be on a nature program oh. on BBC. So I think it's... I think those little nuggets of facts are just absolutely brilliant and she tells it in such an engaging way you're kind of chuckling as you're reading this really funny thing the other thing that i think is brilliant on the brain size thing before we go is that um historically and time and time again you show that men's brains are bigger and that's because men are bigger and if you look at all the animals in the universe and we're trying to relate brain size to intelligence, then the blue whale would be by far the most intelligent animal. And it's not. And it's that kind of connection that you're just like, oh, yeah, that is so obvious. And why have we not thought about it? And so much of the book is like that. You're like, how is it? How has it got this way for so long on this messy data and messy interpretation? I met some really inspirational people at the conference. And the first workshop that I went to was about cultural perception and unconscious bias. And it was led by Professor Angela Johnson. I am a professor of teacher education at St. Mary's College of Maryland. My doctorate is in anthropology of education, but I was a high school physics teacher for many years in a very diverse, racially diverse, and nation of origin and linguistically diverse high school in the suburbs of Washington, DC. When a group of people is both badly isolated in a profession and the subject of stigma in that profession, some very toxic things can occur. And the roots of that toxicity lie in the way our brains work as humans, but the toxicity is not inevitable, and there are things we can do to intervene and to make physics more healthy for anyone who wants to be a physicist and is willing to put in the work. But what do you mean it's in our brains? Because we're, we're not born with that. We're not born with this kind of subconscious bias against particular people. No. What we are born with is mechanisms in our brains that help us think very, very quickly under duress. And that manifests itself in the phenomenon of implicit bias. Implicit bias is when we subconsciously hold stereotypes about members of particular groups, including stereotypes we may explicitly not believe. How do we know that we have, but how do we demonstrate these biases? Very large-scale research studies have shown that not everyone, but most people hold implicit biases that are in alignment with typical stereotypes that permeate our culture. You can go online to the Project Implicit website and you can test yourself to see whether you do indeed find it easier to make negative associations with stigmatized groups than to make positive associations. Or you can just assume that if it's true about everybody, I'm pretty average and it's probably true about me. And that's what I do. I figure, I know I'm not one of the best drivers. I know I'm not one of the best 
of anything else, why would I be the best at this? That's a very strange thing, isn't it? It's something we discussed way back in my first ever episode of the Physics World podcast, back in April 2016, in an episode entitled Physics for All. This idea that we might subconsciously hold views that we don't consciously know that we have. In fact, we may even hold biases, even though we belong to the group that the stereotype is being negative about. I wondered if Angela Johnson had any insight. I'm an anthropologist, so I think about culture, and I think of culture as a set of shared meanings and experiences experienced by a, a group. So let's say I'm talking about my group, which is, let's say I'm talking about people who live in the United States, because I do. In the U.S., we are bathed with the idea of black inferiority and black tendency to violence. We see it on TV. We hear it echoed all around us. It is pervasive. And that shapes our brains even when we find it an abhorrent set of ideas and a set of ideas that are demonstrably false. Our brains are still lapping it up all the time. And so when we think quickly, the connection between black and inferiority can pop into our heads. And if we don't monitor it, we can act on it. And that is why, for example, women in science may, without meaning to picture a scientist as a white man in a lab coat, even when they themselves are a black woman, for instance. I'm, I, I'm picking up from your workshop you just led us in, that it's okay if you have those senses. It's kind of not your fault, it's but cultural. Do. It's how we're made. Yeah. It's our brains. So what do we do about it? Oh, that's easy. I, have a lot. I also have the impulse in traffic to inflict violence on people who I wish would get out of my way, but I don't do it. I monitor my thoughts and I control my actions in response. Once you come to understand that we all hold implicit biases, there are plenty of actions you can take to control for that. The research is pretty clear that you can reduce your level of implicit bias by carefully monitoring your thoughts. And when a stereotyped thought shows up, there are a number of strategies you can take to weaken its salience. For example, if you think a stereotyped thought, you can just point out to yourself that was a stereotype. A better thought would be, and think the other thought, if I'm in the States and I see a black man and I think I should cross the road, he's dangerous, my next thought can be, that is a stereotype. Why don't you look around and assess the situation based on what's really going on? If I catch myself thinking that scientists are white men in white lab coats, I can stop and picture the president of my university who is an African-American woman who is a biochemist. Another strategy that I love is I can practice thinking about life from the perspective of people whose backgrounds are different than me. And the way I like to do that is to read novels written by people who are different from me and think about what life is like for them. Another strategy that I practice on a daily basis is to make friends with people who, on the surface, appear different from me. That alone, having good friends who are members of different classes, races, sexualities, nations, genders, helps reduce implicit bias. And I just do my best, and no one is perfect at this. I do my best to watch my thoughts, and when I think something dumb, I pluck it out like I was weeding a weed out of my garden, and I have never eliminated all the weeds in my garden. They come back up and I pluck them. And that's what I try to do with my brain as well. I've got another tip here. If you listen to podcasts which challenge your worldview while you're doing the gardening, that's a better brain 
and a better garden. But I digress. My concern is that all the people who want to make the world a more inclusive place are predisposed to doing this sort of thing. They're far more likely, by definition, to want to see things from other people's points of view. They want to seek ways to empathise. But what about those people who refuse? What about those people who will listen to this podcast and simply reject what they hear? Not listen and consider it, but find ways to attack it or simply avoid it. If I could solve that, believe me, I don't know, but I do know that for physicists, data can be meaningful. I've seen some physicists profoundly change their approach to their professional behaviors by looking at data. I have faith that people who are open to empirical evidence can change and I don't know what to do about people who are not open to empirical evidence. You figure that out, you just give me a call. I haven't yet, Angela, sorry. But while I was at the conference, I did hear some empirical evidence which I found quite fascinating. There is a correlation between the amount of money available for physics research and the percentage of women involved in it. The lower the money, the higher the percentage of women. In the US, typically around 20% of physics bachelor's degrees are studied by women. And under Obama, there was determination for the R&D spending to be at 3% of GDP. In Serbia, it's a different story. I'm Milica Pavko-Hrvović. I'm a full professor of physics and also dean of the Faculty of Sciences in the University of Novi Sad. Uh, my research is uh, theoretical condensed matter physics, basically magnetism of complex systems. We, we perfectly fit uh, in the uh, lectures, in, in the conclusions of the lectures uh, which were presented today, uh, because uh, the first lecture said that there is anti-correlation uh, between uh, funds which are pumped into the research in the country and uh, the number of women in physics. So basically in Serbia we have uh, 50-50, 50% of women and 50% of men approaching uh, undergraduate studies, what is very rare. And uh, the percentage of funds in our country is uh, 0.1% of GDP. So it is extremely low. Mm. So you can find this anti-correlation and also uh, we confirm the scissor effect uh, that uh, from this 50-50%, 50% of women in physics, uh, full professors, the percentage is very low, and also the leading uh, managing positions, there, is, there are few uh, women in physics. Okay, so do you have an idea of why that is, what's happening? Probably the scissor effect is the result that in certain uh, uh, moment a woman has to take uh, care of the family to find the balance between career and the family. I suppose that it is much more easier for the men. But for the first anti-correlation effect, I don't have the answer. Yeah, yeah. no, it's really interesting, isn't it? I just don't... It's, it's quite unusual, yes. Yeah. Is it, have you seen that in other countries? or is it Yes, yes. This is what uh, today the woman said, Romania, Bulgaria in Europe the countries which are quite, not maybe poor, but uh, there are not a lot of money in research, but they have women I- in physics. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> and and, and no, do you think anybody's got anything to say on it, why that might happen? The, uh, the professor today said that maybe uh, because there is no money, then uh, you need more creativity, you are digging more to, to make the goal, and the women are more persistent in this respect than men. 
That's certainly one possibility. And I imagine there are a number of factors and reasons for that peculiar phenomenon. But as with most statistics, there are outliers. Cases which fall outside the norm. Okay, I'm Helga Danga. I'm from Zimbabwe. My research is on uh, defects in semiconductors. Yes, electrically active defects in semiconductors. Okay, and what, what's, the, what's the situation for women physicists in Zimbabwe? It's, it's, it's a very serious situation. Right now, I'm the only known female physicist. That's the situation we have. They're probably out there somewhere, but then they're, they're not in the country. They are scattered. If they are, they are scattered all over the world. We last had a representation at this conference in 2002, and all these years there has been no representation. So, uh, right, so how did you get here? Uh, that is uh, because of uh, my association with uh, Women in Physics South Africa. Currently I'm studying my PhD at the University of Pretoria. So uh, my master's supervisor introduced me to Women in Physics in South Africa, WIPISA, that's what they call it. And then when uh, the call came for abstracts for this conference, she encouraged me to, to send an abstract. Excellent. So um, how come there are basically no women in physics? Well, the perception that physics is difficult, that's one. Because when I tell people, if people ask me, what, what, what are you studying? And I just say physics, you get that look like, oh, okay. It's, it's surprising because it's, it's, it's a masculine subject. And then uh, the other challenges are that uh, the economic situation doesn't permit people to study um, the sciences at a higher level, like master's and PhD, because once a person has a degree, they want to go out there and get a job and start getting paid. And most parents cannot afford uh, postgraduate studies for their children. And finding oneself is, is not even a possibility. How does it feel when you're here and you're talking to people from, uh, from other countries? Is there anything you feel like you can, you can take back to them? Is there anything you can do about it? Yes. Actually, I have uh, learned uh, quite a lot. This mentorship program, that, that we definitely need. need more mentors. But right now, there is nobody to mentor anyone, in, particularly for women. And even with the men, there are few. There are very few men who have uh, uh, PhDs in physics. Um, are you finding, when you're hearing the stories of the other countries, are you finding that the stories are the experiences of the other women here? Is it very similar to what you faced, or is it, have you had a different experience along the way? Well, I think I should say I have been fortunate. I've been blessed, really. I didn't struggle in terms of, you know, that um, environment where people are hostile towards you because you're a woman studying physics. Yes, there was just the odd guy who would tell you, you're trying to challenge us, you know. But I had supportive colleagues throughout my undergrad and even postgrad studies. So the only problem that I faced was the financial side of things. I couldn't uh, immediately go for an MSc after my honours because there was just no money. Uh, that was 2007, and that's when our country went into a total meltdown. So after five years, uh, I managed to, to, to do my MSc at uh, the University of Pretoria, thanks to my mother, who was working in, in South Africa, so she was able to help me get the funds I needed to pursue a master's. 
And are you, th- are you thinking that you'll go back to Zimbabwe? Is that something you'd like to do, to go back and sort of make a difference there? Definitely. I, I need to do that. If not for, for the women, just for, the, for everyone, basically, both men and female. Because uh, we actually have uh, instances where there are no uh, people studying physics at all in some years in the enrollment. That's how bad it has been, especially at the institution that I am from. How like young do you reckon that kind of kicks in, this fact that people aren't going towards physics? Where do you think you're losing people along the way during their education? Well, it's, it's basically because of the remuneration. When one has a BSc physics degree, the only option they have currently is to go and teach elementary physics. And now the, there's now the struggle that you need a teaching qualification. And if you don't have a teaching qualification, you'll be exploited because they'll say if you want to be a teacher, you need a teaching qualification. Yes, you know physics, but do you have the skills of imparting physics? As Helga said, there has been, and apparently in some cases still is, a mistaken belief that physics is somehow a male subject. As Professor Angela Johnson was saying earlier in the podcast, there are cultural forces which can reinforce this sort of erroneous thinking. But as Angela Saini found in her research for the book Inferior, science itself, or should that be scientists themselves, have played a significant role too. Angela told me that writing the book had changed her outlook. The thing is, I honestly thought I was a very liberal, open-minded, prejudice-free person before I wrote this book. Writing the book has made me question my own uh, feelings about the world because I, I... I honestly did, I think I honestly did think underneath that there were some fundamental differences in the way men and women think. To learn that actually there probably aren't very great differences has been a real surprise to me. And it has forced me to um, question the way I treat people. I I like to think I treat everybody the same, but I'm not sure that I do. Um, So in every interaction that I have, in every encounter that I have, Uh, Every time I write about people, um, I'm so, so careful now to make sure that I don't rest on old gender stereotypes, that I'm I'm actively trying to rid myself of that baggage because I think it's vitally important to treat people as individuals rather than carry those assumptions. Can you just talk to me about some of the feedback you've been getting? Well, the reviews have been brilliant on uh, both the left-wing press and right-wing press, which was quite a surprise because I did think the right-wing press might take exception to what I was saying. But the the negative reaction has been on social media, largely, and in blogs. So essentially people who haven't read the book but have read about it, um, who really don't agree with this idea that um, there are limited psychological differences between men and women. I mean, some of it is just religious. So I've had some responses from, for example, devout Christians, devout Muslims who believe that the sexes are designed to be different, that we're built differently. And then there are others who don't like the fact, for example, that I criticise Darwin for his sexism. Um, I'm not in any way saying that Darwin wasn't a genius in his science. All, all I'm saying is that his... Uh, ideas on women were flawed um but some people still don't like that yeah so there has been some quite deep deeply misogynistic and actually some racist um trolling um and i've <laughs> i've had to retreat from social media a bit just because um 
I think, you know, there's always that element in society and I can't respond to everyone and I don't think it's even useful to respond to these people when I think they're very fixed in their ways. What, what is it that we can do? Is it, have you kind of picked out anything that we can do about this in terms of the way that we report science, the way that we do science? Well, my big hope for the book is that as people read it, um, they learn to be more critical of science for themselves. So I, uh, I got this really lovely um, message on Instagram the other day from a woman who had read my book and she says that she no longer reads science reports in the newspapers with the same eye anymore. And that's exactly what I was hoping for, you know, that um, we don't take as unvarnished fact everything we read about when it comes to science, that we that we think about it more carefully, more critically, and um, also explore the kind of agendas and biases of the scientists themselves and understand that science isn't always this kind of a, a purely objective endeavor that sometimes um scientists are people are humans and when we study humans when humans studying humans there's always room for error and mistakes if you're a, a member of the public who's not got a scientific mind how, how would you recommend that they go about checking that it's difficult yeah i know because uh, very often we read the newspapers although perhaps we do it less than we used to we read the newspapers and assume it's all true what we're reading um and I think with science, the way it needs to be reported is perhaps with a bit of more of a critical eye, perhaps. And I'm not just talking about balance here. I'm not saying that we should present the opposite view and that's the way to talk about research. But, you know, look around the research and don't just report a paper, but also report the um, the scientific uh, information around that paper. What else has been published in that field? Uh, what do other scientists make of it? What do the public make of it? And guard against the possibility that people could misinterpret what's written, which we often do when it comes to research on gender. I, I'm always slightly nervous about this. I think it's a, a, absolutely the right thing. But I'm always slightly nervous of it because the, the people keep flashing in my head are climate deniers. And as yeah. soon as you as soon as you suggest that there's any kind of question mark about the science, then they will massively overstate that, and they will misunderstand whether they misunderstand deliberately or not um, mm. that that uncertainty. Uh, it, does that concern you at all? I actually think even climate science would benefit from this approach because if you think about it this way, if a climate denier finds a paper that uh, supports their view, their world view they will think that that is fact you know they will they will just pick out whatever it is that that happens to support their um understanding of the situation if they had a more nuanced understanding of science that it's not just about one single piece of evidence that actually you need a body of evidence over time built up and that's how we understand uh that's how science works, that it's a process. It's not just about individual statistics or individual facts, pieces of fact here and there. Then I think it would aid people's understanding of how science works. Because people, if they see something that, if they see science that contradicts other science, then they think that science doesn't know what it's doing. Scientists don't know what they're doing. When in fact, this is how science works. There are anomalies there. There are, there are always results that contradict other results. But Science needs to be understood as a process. You know, a, lo a long view needs to be taken. And I think that's the only way to do it. And when it comes to gender and race, for that matter, um, the science not only needs a kind of scientific context, but also historical context and social context. 
I, th- I really think that's the only way to understand these quite complex problems um, of uh, human behaviour. We are all, at least in part, products of our upbringing and cultural influences around us. I doubt if any of us would imagine that all of those influences have been entirely positive. If there's one thing I'd like to take away from making this podcast is that we can all change the way we think and react and behave. Even if our unconscious minds dictate our reactive thoughts, we can correct them before we act on them. I'd like to thank Angela Samey for talking to me and of course for writing such a well-researched, thoughtful and important book. I've met some really fascinating people at the conference and I've only been able to bring some of them to you on this episode. But thank you so much to everyone who talked to me and Sarah Tesh for joining me in those interviews. I'm sure you'll all want to check out Jess Wade's review of Inferior on physicsworld.com. I'll be back next month when we'll be hearing about a stunning project at the Jodrell Bank Observatory. Thanks again for all your tweets, emails and comments on the website. It's always great to hear from you. And in particular, thank you to Bullocks and Napoleon D for your lovely reviews on iTunes. And thank you for listening. Physics World